Uh, we're talking about rebuilding or rebuild. And uh, I know that uh, it's a shocker to most of you, but if we look at our world, if we look at the country that we're in, or if you look at every single country that's out there, uh, we're all going through the process of rebuilding. You are. Whether you like it or not, uh, people are having to go through the process of rebuilding. Now, they may not be rebuilding homes, but they may be rebuilding other things. Uh, my favorite story, my favorite thing, though, talking about rebuilding and something that's very interesting is it, about it is that um, is, is there's this part in ta- of town, of Charlotte, uh, that Erica and I like to go to. And um, many of y'all will know this part of town. What do y'all think is mine and Erica's favorite? Wow, how did y'all know? It's just, I love it. I really like going to know it. Does that make me a hipster? Does it make me weird? Like, does... I enjoy going to Noda. Erica's favorite restaurant is the Crepe Cellar. And so last week for her birthday, uh, we went to the Crepe Cellar. And uh, Erica was bummed out because her favorite thing on the menu was taken off the menu. And so she had to get something new. She wasn't a big fan of it. Um, But we like going to Noda uh, because um, we love the vibe of the neighborhood. We love how it has kept its quaint and chill atmosphere while being so close to Uptown. And while redevelopers are starting to go in and tear down houses and storefronts, there are some areas in the neighborhood that have not yet been destroyed, but they've been preserved. And instead of tearing down and starting over, uh, they have rebuilt. I think the greatest example of this is Optimist Hall. Have any of y'all ever been to Optimist Hall? Anybody? Raise your hand. Like two people, three people. It's actually really, really, really cool. Um, they have a place that is specifically dedicated to grilled cheeses. Just You can buy grilled cheeses there, like gourmet grilled cheeses, which I never thought that that was such of a thing, but you can get gourmet grilled cheeses. I went last week when me and Erica went, and I went to this Cuban bakery place, and I got some tres leche cake, and dude, have you all ever had tres leche cake? It is amazing. It is glorious. It is glorious. It's, it's, it's delicious. But see, Optimus Hall didn't start off to be a food hall. See, it was previously called Highland Park Gingham Mill and Highland Park Mill Number 1. Optimus Hall was originally home to Charlotte's largest textile mill, built in 1892. The plant's signature smokestack was added three years later to service the boiler room. By the early 1900s, the Highland Park Manufacturing Company, which also owned Highland Park's mill number two and three, shocker, had become the nation's third largest producer of gingham. All right, do any of y'all know what that is? All right, y'all watched The Wizard of Oz before? Okay, you know the material that Dorothy's dress was made out of? That was gingham, all right? It's kind of like a, it's, it's like a picnic-y texture type thing, but that's, that's what it was. So they were the third largest producer of gingham. The prominent mill became a focal point of Charlotte's booming textile industry, which at its height saw 771 mills and 100, I mean, not 100, 10 million spindles operating within 75 miles of the city. In 1972, though, the mill began producing raw fabrics used for pantyhose. That's interesting. Several years later, the company expanded its operation in order to produce fully finished products, growing to a 500-person operation by 1989. I thought this was very interesting about Optimus or what this place used to be. In 2000, the mill began building a prototype of a new invention. You know what that invention was? 
Spanx. So Spanx were made in Charlotte. And ever what, Brad? What? What are Spanx? There's something that my that my sister told me about one time that she wears when she wears a dress. I don't know. I thought it was interesting. Spanx were made in Charlotte. Okay. Rachel said it better than me. The mill continued to run strong for many years, even though the Great Depression and both world wars, through ownership change, those ownership changed several times, the mill continued to operate on some level until 2015. The property, though, was purchased in 2016. And this is the idea of when they purchased the property. You could have done one of two things. You could have tore it down and just built a ton of apartments, retail space, and make it look new and cool and fancy. Or you could have kept the building and preserved the building, but rebuild the inside of it. And that's what they did. They rebuilt it. They had this vision uh, with an ad- for an adaptive reuse project that would give Charlotte its first food hall and also provide distinct modern office space to a business community hungry for change. See, I'm thankful that this mill was rebuilt to become Optimist Hall. You can only imagine what type of economic impact that it has had in that area. It had an economic impact in the past because it was a mill and it gave people a place to work and it gave them a livelihood. But now it's given people a place to gather, to fellowship, to hang out. All because somebody in their mind, instead of destroying it, they wanted to rebuild it. We need to understand rebuilding is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And if we look at the status of the church as a whole, we are all in a season of rebuilding. Corporately as a church, we're in a season of rebuilding. We're in the process of rebuilding our Sunday morning attendance. If you come here on on Sunday mornings, you understand we don't have life groups or Sunday school. So we're going to be in the process of rebuilding our life groups and Sunday school. If you hang out with us here on a Thursday, you understand that we're in the process of rebuilding even what we do on Thursdays. I know some of you are shocked, but we don't do food right now, which kind of bums me out because I really miss Donna's cooking, don't you? It was so good. I miss the apple dumplings that she made. They put the apples in the little crescent rolls, you know? Oh, dude, those things were bomb. I had like seven of them at one time. Like literally. Exactly. It was my fault. See, not only, though, are we rebuilding within churches, we're rebuilding within our country. We're having to rebuild our economy. Restaurants are having to rebuild their customer bases. Gyms are having to rebuild how they function. But not only within the business world and within the church, but personally we're having to rebuild. I believe that we are all in a moment of rebuilding. Some of you through this pandemic, some of you through the stay-at-home order, you had the opportunity to become very self-reflective and see really some habits that needed to be rebuilt in your life. And most importantly, some of you have looked at your relationship with the Lord and have seen that it really needs to be rebuilt. But remember, rebuilding is not a bad thing. Rebuilding is a part of life. And my prayer for me and you and for this ministry and for our church and for the church as a whole, and that in this season of life, we would be successful in rebuilding our lives.
we need to. And so here we are. We're in Nehemiah. And I want you to know that each and every one of you have more in common with Nehemiah than you think. Understand this. Nehemiah was not a preacher. He was not a prophet. We're going to talk about rebuilding a wall. Nehemiah wasn't even an architect or a contractor. He was a cupbearer. So he didn't even have a job where he really worked outside. He had a fancy, cushy job where he just sat inside and he drank stuff before the king drank it. And he ate food before the king ate it. He wasn't somebody very high, important, or this great man that, you know, you think of people in the Bible and those that are uh, got names that, you know, he's got a book named after him. You think, man, he's got to be some mighty, mighty, great preacher, man of God that went to seminary and went to school and learned all these things. No, he wasn't. Nehemiah was a part of the working class. And that should help us and encourage us in the beginning of our rebuilding process. See, God didn't choose an architect. He didn't choose a general contractor. He didn't choose a preacher or a prophet. He chose someone who was available. He chose someone that was available. He chose someone who was willing. He chose someone who cared and was concerned. So as we begin, that's my first question. Even before we read. Are you willing to be used by God? Do you want God to rebuild some things in your life? Do you want God to re- actually rebuild the things within this church? Because some of us, and, and this has even been a mindset even sometimes of pastors that I read about and I've connected with, they thought that as soon as they just opened up the doors of the church, guess what was going to happen? People were just going to flood back in left and right. And, and that's awesome. And if you go on a Wednesday night, shout out to the Point and Tribe, that's what's happened. <laughs> you open up the doors and the parents are like, thank God I can finally get my kids out of the house. <laughs> but now you're in a point to where, but, and even then though, you've probably seen students that you've seen on Sunday that you've hardly even not even seen on, I mean, you've seen students on Wednesday that you haven't even seen on Sunday. They don't even want to come to church. Guys, we, have, we are in a very, very serious time as believers and men and women of God. So are you willing? If you are, and I hope you are, then I hope you will take serious this study. I hope you will take serious the practical attributes that we find within this book. Through this study, you will find out that you have a lot in common with a group of people who are trying to rebuild a wall. So let's read Nehemiah 1 together. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, Now it happened in the month of uh, Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, then Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile in great trouble and shame, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept. 
and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you, day and night, for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them through you, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power, and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. Um, Father, as we sit down tonight and we look at this prayer that Nehemiah prayed, Father, may we learn that life change starts with prayer. Power comes from prayer. Repentance comes from prayer. Rebuilding begins with prayer. Father, I pray that through this evening that you would transform our prayer life. That, Father, for those who don't pray, that they will begin to start praying. Father, for those who only pray once a day, Father, they'll pray five times a day. Father, for those that continue to pray and are faithful in talking to you, may they be encouraged and understanding is that that is how you work in our lives through prayer. Be with this time now in your awesome holy name. Amen and amen. So we're going to be in three different areas today. We're going to ask actually answer three different questions or, or ask three different things. And there are these three. We're going to look at um, why Nehemiah prayed. We're going to look at how Nehemiah prayed. And we're going to look at when Nehemiah prayed. But we need to understand this about prayer. It is the most essential part of your life with Christ. Martin Luther said this, To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Abraham Lincoln, a president of the United States, said this about prayer, I have been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I have nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of all about me seemed insufficient for that day. To say the least, prayer is essential to the life of the believer. It is what keeps us aligned with God. 
If you have no prayer in your life, you won't have much of a life. Prayer is essential for your life. Nehemiah understood the importance of prayer. And we are going to see why he thought it was important. The book begins and ends with Nehemiah praying. In chapter 1 he prays, and at the end of the book he's praying. There's one thing that we know about Nehemiah is that he prayed. Even in this passage of Scripture, he says, Day and night I prayed to you, God. Not only is it just essential for a Christian, but uh, one of the things that people look at the life of Nehemiah, and even in a couple commentaries I'm reading about it, they think that the main idea of this book is just straight-up leadership. And I know some of you in here, at least you're developing leadership skills. Some of you are in positions of leadership at work, and you're trying to figure out, man, what does it mean to be a leader? What does it mean to be a leader? Well, the first thing you need to understand what it means to be a leader is, is that you need to be able to pray. Because when you lead, you're leading people. And you're wanting to encourage people. You're going to want to help people. And in leadership, you're wanting to develop people. And you're going to want to see people change. Well, what we're going to find out is is that you can't change somebody. You may think that you can make somebody change because you're forceful with them or because you're angry with them or because you yell at them or because you're nice with them. There's only one person that can truly change somebody. And I hate to break it to you, it's not you. It's God. And so Nehemiah understood as a leader and just as a man of God understood the importance of prayer. So, I know this is fun. So the first thing we're going to look at is we're going to look at, and I'm not even going to do this anymore, Ted, because my phone just keeps locking and I don't want to change all that stuff. So if you can help me with this, that'd be awesome. But the first thing we're going to look at is why he prayed in verses 1 through 4. Read that. Let's look at the beginning. He says, Nehemiah's brother, uh, Hanani, came uh, with some friends that were from Judah. And our buddies Nehemiah, he asked a question. What was the question that Nehemiah asked his brother? How is Jerusalem? Now remember this. Let's get a history lesson. If you read this cool little study guide we gave you, there's some history stuff and there's some backstory to this. Um, Somewhere around 150 years before this conversation, Babylon came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. All right? Who was the king of Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar? He comes in. He destroys the city, he destroys the temple, he destroys the walls. But since then, Persia had overthrown Babylon as a world power. And now, those that were under uh, Babylonian captivity, while some of them had gone back to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity had been done, but still there were some that were in Persia. There were some that were still serving there in Persia, and Nehemiah was one of them. But he still had a passion, he still had compassion, he still had a concern for the city of his father. All right, we need to understand all throughout the Jews, they are, you're living in the South, so you know that people are very patriotic. I don't think that there wasn't a Jew in this time that wasn't patriotic. They loved the city. They loved where they were. They loved Jerusalem. Nehemiah was one of those people. And see, not only though, after this, and, and Persia now has taken over, and here we are in this moment where in the past 20 years before Nehemiah, there was a guy by the name of Zerubbabel and Ezra, and they went in, and they had this desire and this passion to want to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. 
And they were able to do that. And we're going to find out and we're going to talk about Ezra later on in this book. But in their attempt to rebuild the temple, in their attempt to somewhat rebuild the wall in those same moments, those in the city turned apathetic towards the task. And the walls that they were attempting to rebuild under Ezra and Zerubbabel, well, they never really got rebuilt. And if you need to understand this, back in those days, walls to a city were important. It's how you stayed safe. It's how you stayed protected. It's how you kept the mess out. It's how you kept your people feeling safe and secure. Also, I think it's pretty funny that we're talking about a wall during an election year. Uh, that's, you know, pretty neat as well. But um, because of his position as a cupbearer, Nehemiah, he knows what's going on in the city of his fathers. And the news he gets from his brother is bad. What does his brother say? The city and the people are in trouble. The wall is broken down and the gates of the city are destroyed. So how does Nehemiah respond? He sat down, wept, and he mourned. Have you ever had the weight of a situation hit you in a moment and it forced you to sit down? One moment comes to mind, and I think this was right. While I was studying this, when, when I was reading this and thinking about how just it made Nehemiah just sit down. Any of y'all ever remember the moment of, what was the, the, the Force Awakens? Did any of y'all watch Star Wars, The Force Awakens? Okay, some of you are going to be like, okay, he said Star Wars, so I'm getting away. But there's this moment in the film, uh, and spoiler alert, um, Han Solo dies, okay? Um, and I know that's a bummer, and, but something happens within his uh, ex-wife, Leia, when Han Solo dies, where she just gets hit hard, and her heart just sinks, and she has to sit down. That's what I imagine happened to Nehemiah when he heard that the city was in ruin, that the walls were broken, that the people were in trouble. He was hurt. He wept. He mourned. He is overwhelmed by the news that he hears, and it burdens his heart to the point that he can't even stand. Let me ask you this question. When was the last time that you were so burdened for something that it made you sit down? Or it made you cry? Or it made you weep? When was the last time you cried over your sin? When was the last time that you cried over the apathetic nature of the church? See, the reason why Nehemiah prayed was because he was burdened for his city. His burden for the city made him ask his brother how the city was. And it was his burden for the city that made him respond the way he did. Some of you in here would say, well, dude, I'm not emotional. I'm not a crier. I believe that it would do us all good if we had a moment where we truly wept over our sin that we would cry over brokenness. 
thinking about the word burden, I am reminded of the words that Jesus says. Come unto me, all who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. And that is exactly what Nehemiah does. See, we must remember that when we are burdened with worries and upset at what we see in our lives, the first place we must run is to the prayer closet and to pray with God. So not only do we see why he prayed, but now we're going to see how he prayed. And that's found in uh, verses 5 through 11. Many Christians, I don't think they have a good prayer life. I know that I struggle with mine. See, they struggle with it because they don't know how to pray. See, we think we know how to pray because we just bow our heads and say, Jesus, God, thank you, or, you know, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, or God our Father, God our Father. That's how my nephew sang. Once, uh, thank you for our blessings. Thank you for. Did y'all not? Did y'all never pray like that as a kid? You remember those? We think that we know how to pray because that's how we just do it. But honestly, I, I think sometimes we struggle with praying. Tonight, I hope to help you with that, uh, because Nehemiah gives us a great model prayer here in this text. It's so cool that there's an actual acrostic that we can correlate with his prayer. And it's probably an acrostic that you've heard before. And really the acrostic, it's really old and people have talked about it from time to time. But I think that it's really uh, important that we go through this. Because if you need help in praying, this will help you a ton. You know what the acrostic is? Acts. Acts. A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. All four of these elements are found within this prayer. And I think it's also important to understand that all four elements, when you pray, should be done in this exact order. See, many of us, we just want to get down to the supplication. Many of us in our prayer life, the only thing that we really want to do is just pray to God, like, hey, God, I need help with this. That's not the main idea of prayer. If you praying to God just so that you can get an answer from Him regarding some request that you have, and that's literally the, the, the extent of your prayer life, Hey, God, I need help with this. I'm stuck in this difficult situation. Can you help me? Can you help me with this job? Hey, God, um, I'm really you know, struggling for some cash right now. Can you help me? I need some, some new ways to get some money. Hey, Lord, you know what? You know that girl that I talked to the other night? You know, I really, really, really like her. Um, I'm going to ask her out. Can you uh, make that happen? Um, I would really, really like that. See, when you pray... It in, when you pray in this order, I think that there's just something that changes in your prayer. Because really, you don't get to yourself until the very last one. The first three are just about the Lord. 
Let's look at that. First, adoration. You see that in verses 5 and 6. He goes on and says in verse 5, And I say, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love Him and keeps His commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant. And now I pray before you day and night. There it is. Day and night I pray before you, Lord, for the people of Israel, your servants. See, we, the first thing we see here is adoration. Prayer should always begin with a time of adoring God with praise that He deserves. Prayer does not start with just you throwing up requests like we said. Prayer begins with you acknowledging God for who He is. Look how Nehemiah does this. Who does he say God is? Just shout him out in those first two verses there. Verses 5 and 6. Who does he say that God is? God of heaven. So that shows us His sovereignty. He is above all. He's, he's adoring and praising God for His sovereignty. Another one. Who shouted out? Great and awesome. So He is showing His power. He is telling God and adoring God and, think, and praising Him for His power. What's another one? Keeps his, he is faithful. He is adoring God. He, you are a faithful God. God, you are powerful. You are sovereign. You are faithful. What's another one? You are loving. And you are always loving. And then he says, at the very beginning, he says, Oh Lord. He calls him king. So you're king, you're sovereign, you're faithful, you're powerful, you're loving. Now, some of you would be like, why in the world are you doing this? Why are you, trying to, why are you talking to God in such a way where you're reminding Him of who He is? You're not reminding God of who He is. You're reminding yourself of who God is in this moment. How many times have we been just living life? Because there could have been a moment when Nehemiah heard of what was going on in Jerusalem where he was so focused on his burden, that he was so focused on the difficult situation that was before him, that he forgot, he may have forgotten who God was. I know that's happened in my life. I've looked at the trials that I've gone through, and I've seen how high they are and how big they are, and I thought to myself, you know what? I am never going to be able to get through this trial that I'm going through. I'm never going to be able to overcome the sin that I'm dealing with in my life. I can never get through this. But when I remind myself of who God is, that mindset changes. Prayer is more for you than it is for God. Nehemiah in this moment, while yes, he's adorning God and, he's, and this has this adoration towards him, but he's saying the things that he's saying more for himself than for God. Not only do we see adoration, but secondly, we see confession. We see that in 6b and 7, the second part of 6 and 7. He says, confessing, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. 
We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant, Moses. Now, this is one that, you know, I, I, I know that I, I don't like being, you know, confessing the part that I'm wrong. I don't like that. I think uh, it's just that's me and my flesh. But confession is healthy when it comes to your prayer life. See, Nehemiah knew that the sin of the Israelites had caused the judgment of God that resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem. If you read the history of Israel, if you look at the history of Judah, you look at them, they sinned. They got caught up in sin. They got caught up in these sin cycles and these different things to where they would repent. They would turn from their false idols. They would turn from false doctrine. They would turn from all these different things. They would turn towards God. They would serve God. And then all of a sudden there would be some other idol or God that came into their life. And the process would continue and continue and continue and continue and continue and continue till eventually God said, enough of this. You know what? I'm sending the Babylonians. Do you remember that cool verse in Habakkuk? Uh, was it Habakkuk 2 in verse Habakkuk 1 where he says, what I'm about to do is going to blow your mind. I'm raising up the Chaldean. A lot of people quote that verse. It's one of those fun uh, quoted verses that are out of context. He's like, man, I'm doing this thing in your time that's going to blow your mind. I'm raising up what? The Babylonians. The Babylonians came. The Babylonians destroyed the city and, and came in. And they did this because of the unfaithfulness of those in Jerusalem and Judah and Israel. See, Nehemiah knew the sin of the Israelites had caused the judgment of God that resulted in the destruction of the city. If Jerusalem were to be destroyed, it would need to be restored upon the basis of a confession of their sins. So Nehemiah is specific about them. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and the laws that you gave your servant Moses. Confession is important. You need to understand that. Lee Strobel, who's a, an amazing apologist and just a great man of God, says, Few things uh, accelerate the peace process as much as humbly admitting our own wrongdoing and asking for forgiveness. If you want peace in your life, start with confessing sin. If you want God to restore stuff in your life, confess the sin that has caused the brokenness and the craziness within your life. See, what is so striking about this confession, though, is that he includes himself in it. Here is an important nugget in regards to leadership. All right? If you want to develop some leadership skills, here's a fun nugget for you. A true leader is not so much aware of the talents or gifts he has that others do not have as he is of the fact that or uh, I'm going to read it again. A true leader is not so much aware of the talents or gifts he has that others do not have, but a true leader is aware that he is weak and is as capable of sin as anyone. It is when leaders forget their sinfulness that they fall into sin and lose their leadership ability. Nehemiah wasn't the reason why Jerusalem was destroyed. But he includes himself because he is just aware as much of his sinfulness 
as other sinfulness. See, it's easy to call out somebody else's sin. It's difficult to call out your own sin. But Nehemiah jumbles himself and puts himself in the same boat. See, we are all capable of sin. Even me. What gets us in trouble is if we forget that we are all sinners. Nehemiah could have easily just said, God, I am praying for the sin. Father, forgive the sin of my fathers and my forefathers. But no, he's here in the moment and says, God, forgive me of my sin too. He doesn't isolate himself, but he puts himself in the bunch and says, God, I've sinned against you too. The third thing we see here is thanksgiving. We see that in verses 8 through 10. Starting in verse 8. In this, in this case, though, this is going to be interesting because 8 through 10, you're going to be like, well, that's not really thanksgiving. But in this case specifically, thanksgiving is expressed in the remembrance of God's promise to Moses. Look what he says. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you, you're an outcast, uh, your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, and there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. See, we should be thankful about the promises of God in our life. We should be thankful that we serve a God who is faithful to do what His Word says He would. And in this moment, that is what Nehemiah is doing. He is thanking God, not only for the fact that, okay, your Word says, yes, that if we don't keep your commandments, you would scatter us. But you know what your Word also says, Lord? And I'm thankful for this part. But you said that if we keep your commandments, if we repent of our sins, if we turn from our wicked ways, if we come back to you and we follow you, it says that you'll bring us back together. And God, I'm thankful that that stuff right there is in your word. That's what Nehemiah is saying here. He is having thanksgiving towards a promise that God has in his word. See, we should be thankful that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We should be thankful that if we call upon the name of the Lord, we will be saved. We should be thankful that if we delight ourselves in the Lord, that He will give us the desires of our hearts. We should be thankful that if we trust in God, He will direct our paths. We should be thankful that if we trust in God, we will mount up with wings like eagles. We will run and not grow weary. We will walk and not faint. And we should be thankful that if we keep His commandments, if we turn from our wicked ways, if we turn from the sin in our lives, if we confess our sin in our lives, that when we do those things, He will put the pieces of our life back together. You need to spend time in your prayer life thanking God for who He is and what He has done and what He has given you. We can take it to the standpoint in thanking God for His promises and reminding God and thanking Him for who He is and His promises that He keeps and that they never fail. But I'll never forget every single time I would hear my mom pray. It didn't matter if it was we were praying 
to eat, or if she was just leading in prayer for a family prayer, or if she was praying before uh, bed or whatever it was, always one of the first things that came out of her mouth was, God, thank you for another day just to live. God, thank you for breath. Thank you for life. Thank you for my family. Thank you for food to eat. Thank you for giving us another day. When you become thankful, your attitude changes. It just does. So we see that. There was thanksgiving. We finally come to this last one, which is supplication. Verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Finally, after adoring and showing adoration, after confessing sin and after thanking God uh, that he is a man of his word, Nehemiah comes to his request, his supplication. And what is it? that he would be granted mercy in the sight of the king. This was a humongous deal for Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Cupbearer to the king of Persia. Which, side note, for those of you that were in high school and went through Esther and now you're in here, uh, more than likely the king was uh, Esther's stepson. That's pretty neat, right? So this king was Esther's stepson. But still, even though this king would probably had a relationship with Esther and knew that she was a Jew, if you went to this king on the wrong day and he was ticked off, and you would ask him a question like this, like, hey, king, can I go back to my city where my fathers were born, the city of Jerusalem, which really used to be... Um, a thriving place, and not only was a thriving place, but the nation as a whole of Israel was a thriving nation that had a big army and that was very a, a, a power back in the day. God, that king, 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 that, that, that city, can I go back to that city? And not only can I go back to that city, but can I rebuild the walls of that city? Can I put back up protection around that city so that nobody will hurt that city anymore? Honestly, you could be thinking, like, so what you want to do is, is that you want to go try to rebuild that kingdom. You want to go over there and you want to start a renaissance. You want to start, maybe even you want to start a rebellion. Are you rebelling against me? You're rebelling against your king? How dare you rebel against your king? No, I'm not going to let you go do that. Actually, you know what? I'm going to kill you. Leave. So this was a very, very serious matter for Nehemiah. But he asked, God, grant me mercy inside of this king. See, he, his life was in the hands of the king. And it was just dependent upon how his day was going, if he would allow Nehemiah to go to Jerusalem or not. See, you can't change the heart of man. I said that before, I'll say it again. You can't change the heart of man. Only 
God can change the heart of man. And Nehemiah realized that. Proverbs 21.1 tells us that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. So you know what that means for us? Okay, hey, you know, we're, we're, in, a, okay, we're in election season. We, we got a king, we got a president that's over us. If you, want, if you want to see change within his life, guess, guess whose hand is on the, the, the heart of the king? Guess who has the ability to change somebody? God, who you can talk to whenever you want to. Hudson Taylor said it like this, It is possible to move men through God by prayer alone. If you're wanting to try to change somebody's mind, or are wanting to change because the way they are living is not God-honoring, you start with prayer. Or if you want a situation changed in your life. You have a boss that's not treating you right at work. Maybe instead of talking junk about him behind his back and to your coworkers, maybe you pray for him and see if God will change his heart. You got a coworker that's not treating you right. Maybe you go to God and pray, God, do something in their lives. God, change their heart. You got family members that have done you wrong that have done your family wrong. Pray that God would change their heart. Nehemiah knew that the only way that the king would allow him to go to Jerusalem if God was if God allowed that to happen and if God changed his heart. So we see why he prayed, we see how he prayed, and we finally see here now when he prayed. We see that in verses 1, we see it in verses 6, and then we see it in verse, or chapter 2, verse 1. See, Nehemiah in his prayer said that he prayed what? Both day and night. Day and night, Nehemiah prayed. And that's great that he prayed both day and night. But it goes even deeper than that. Verse 1 tells us that his brother came to him in the month of Kislev which is like Christmas season for us, okay? Kislev in the Jewish calendar, it was right around, like right after Thanksgiving and then right before Christmas. You know that weird time where like you don't, it, it's, it may not be really time to start putting up Christmas decorations and, and sing Christmas songs because it's, you know, still November, but, but Christmas is on its way and you just said, that's around the time that, that, his brother comes to him and gives him the news. But in chapter 2, when the king finally hears Nehemiah's request, and said the month of Nisan, not the car, which corresponds to around Easter for us. In other words, four to five months have passed between the time Nehemiah began to petition God regarding Jerusalem and the time when his request was answered. Nehemiah shows perseverance, consistency, 
and that he prayed continually. When did Nehemiah pray? He prayed every single day. The same prayer, the same request, time after time after time after time after time after time, till eventually God gave him an answer. But me and my prayer life, I just give a request one time. And think, you know what? I gave it enough. <laughs> I gave it to him once. So you know what? I, he's going to get it for me. I told, I, I requested this. I gave this supplication. I told him about it once. So you know what? That's enough times. No, it's not. When I was a little kid, I was like four or five years old. Christmas was a really big deal to me. And it still is because you know why? It's my birthday. Okay? Christmas is my birthday. So Jesus, uh, you know, he stole my thunder. It's his birthday too. So we celebrate Jesus instead of me. But Christmas was a big deal to me because uh, I loved presents. I loved presents. And so if I wanted something specifically, you know what I would go to my mom and do? And this was one year specifically. I was like four or five years old. Okay, there was only one toy that I wanted. And it was a Mickey Mouse train set. And it was the coolest thing in the world. And Snoopy was the conductor. And it would go around and around and around. And that is literally the only thing that I wanted. And I remember this specifically because this is the same year that the Lion King came out. So all my, all my toys were wrapped in Lion King wrapping paper. And I got a Simba plush like teddy bear type thing that was really cool. And I got all these awesome toys. But there was only one toy that I wanted. You know why? My mom knew I wanted this toy. I'm sorry, Santa doesn't exist. But I told my mom, hey, mom, I want this toy. I want this toy. I want this toy. I want this toy. Mom, get me this Mickey Mouse train set. And after everything, it was like the Red Ryder BB gun incident because the fact is that that's what he wanted and that was the last present that came out and that's what he opened. So I had one present left and I still did not have anything that I wanted because that's the only thing that I wanted was this train set that had Mickey Mouse and Snoopy in it. It's not Snoopy, is it? Snoopy. Goofy. 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 Snoopy is Charlie Brown. Man, there, there you go, Nate. You're just awesome. Every Disney lover in here is probably really upset with me right now. No, it's cool. It's cool. It was Goofy. It was Goofy. It was Goofy. Goofy was it. Because Goofy was funny. Because the Goofy movie was an awesome movie. But still, Goofy was the conductor. And so it was the last toy. And I opened it. And it was this. And you know the reason why I got it? Because I consistently told my mom about it. Now, Bummer is, is that we opened it up, and guess what? It was broken, so I never got to play with it. And then on top of that, we took it back to Toys R Us because there was, used to be a place called Toys R Us that you go to. They didn't have any more in stock, and this was before, like, Amazon and the Internet, so you couldn't go and return it there either. So did I ever get it? No. But the moral of the story is I kept consistently asking my mom, give me this toy, give me this toy, give me this. This is what I want for my birthday. This is what I want for Christmas. And you know what she did? She got it for me. And it's pretty awesome. Now, yes, does God know the desires of our heart? He does. He knows what we want inside. He knows our desires. But the fact of the matter is, is that we need to be consistently praying for the things that we want in our lives and the supplications that we have before the Lord. If you're serious about something and you only pray it to the Father one time, I don't really believe that you're serious about it. Nehemiah started praying for this 
in, this, in November and didn't get an answer until April. That's a long time. I know some people that started praying for something that they've been praying for salvations from their families for years and years and years and years. And they keep, and you know what? God still hasn't answered that prayer, but you know what they're still doing? They're still praying about that. There are some things that you're praying for in your life, and you may have prayed for them like one or two times, and then you stop praying for them. And you're upset because God hasn't answered your prayer. No, you need to continually pray and seek the Lord. See, your request unto God is not something that you just give to Him one time, but it's something that you should pray for day after day after day after day until He gives you an answer to that request. Now, He may answer their request and tell you no, but at least you get an answer for it. But until you get an answer for that request, you need to keep praying about it. There's still a girl that I know in my life that um, she was a part of this ministry. She was faithful in this ministry. She graduated from this ministry. But still, when I ask her for prayer requests, she's friends with my wife and I. And still, when I ask for prayer requests, she still gives the same prayer request that she's given for, like, I think, the last like 10 years, which is, Nate, pray for my brother. He's lost. Pray for my brother. He's lost. I'm like, girl, that's consistent prayer life. You need to be persistent in your prayer. See, when was the last time that you prayed unto God regarding a request multiple times a day? When was the last time that you prayed unto God regarding a request faithfully for a week? When, why should we expect God to move on our behalf if we are not serious in our prayer life before Him on a daily basis? So when did he pray? He prayed all the time. Until God gave him an answer. And you need to go come next week and you'll figure out what the answer is. So in closing, in closing, we see why he prayed. Why did he pray? Because God had burdened his heart for his city. For his people. How did he pray? Through adoration and confession and thanksgiving and then supplication. When did he pray? He prayed all the time. But in closing, I have some self-reflection questions to ask you personally. One, the question is, do you want God to rebuild something in your life? Do you really want Him to rebuild it in your life? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's your attitude towards work. Maybe the thing that he needs to rebuild in your life is your focus on school. I'll just confess, that's me. That's me. Been lazy on that end. I got stuff to do just so that I can finish and get done. 
What is it that God wants to do in your life? What is it that you want Him to rebuild? Maybe it's relationship with family. And I'm here to tell you that is possible. That is possible. Another question, when was the last time you wept over your sin? Another question, when was the last time you spent time in prayer adoring and thanking God for who He is and what He has done in your life? And finally, when was the last time that you were so serious about a request unto God that you, re- you lifted that request up to Him consistently until He gave you an answer? Some of y'all have stopped praying about the thing because God, you, you just don't think that God's ever going to do that. Some of you never give up on a request. There's nothing too small to bring before God. There's nothing too big to bring before God. And guess what? My mom probably got really annoyed by how many times I told her I wanted that Mickey Mouse and Goofy uh, train set. I got it right that time. She probably got annoyed. Uh, God doesn't get annoyed by your continual prayer to Him. He wants you to pray. He wants you to come to Him with your request. He wants you to. So in closing, may the way we pray change tonight. May we become men and women of God that not only pray consistently, but may the way we pray change. May prayer no longer be about us, and what we need, but may it be about God, who He is, and who He is in our life. Let's pray. As the band comes up, we're going to close with one song. But as we now have our head bowed and our eyes closed, for some of y'all, this may be the first time that you're praying to God today. And if so, that's okay. Because you know why? You're praying to Him. But as we close in this time of reflection and we're answering these questions that we've asked, um, my encouragement is, is that we would change the way that we pray. Father, I'm sorry for the times I fail you through my prayer life. I'm sorry for the ways that I fail you. But Father, you know what? You are gracious and you are slow to anger. And you are rich in love, God. You are good to all. Father, your word tells us is that if we confess our sin, you are faithful to forgive us and you are able to forgive us because of your justice and that you are just and righteous. 
And so, Father, we praise you this evening for who you are. God of heaven, great and awesome. You keep your covenants, and I'm thankful that you do. God, you are full of love. Father, forgive us from where we failed you. Not only me personally, Father, but us corporately where we sin against you. God, we see the status of where we are just, just as, a ch- as church in general, just all around the world, specifically within this country, God. Father, we are apathetic towards the things of you. So, Father, I am sorry that we are that way, Father, that you would forgive us of that. Father, I thank you for forgiving us of our sin. Father, I thank you for what your word says, that you will restore to us the joy of our salvation. And so, Father, I come before you right now, and my desire for every single person in this room, including myself, is is that God, you would teach us how to pray. Start with me. In your name, amen.